Hello, and welcome to the Cold Pizza Party Podcast. My name is Lubitsa. And I'm Adam. And this is a podcast about politics and TV. More or um, less. Yeah. Our politics are leftist, our taste in TV are pretty trashy. This week we're going to talk about Ilhan Omar and the controversy. But don't tune out and if you know, you've listened to your favorite podcasts already talk about it. I know we're always late. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think you'll find that our take is sort of different and maybe a little more thoughtful. It's definitely deeper and smarter and better. <laughs> I was going to say more thoughtful, but yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, uh, yeah, we don't want to retread old ground. Yeah, exactly. So. We listen to those podcasts too, so. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so before we get into that, do you have anything to recommend? Um, you go first. I'm not sure what to recommend. Okay, I'm gonna recommend. Um, well, like in the past, I've talked about skincare and the importance of skincare, like using a hyaluronic acid on a wet face. Uh, don't put it on a dry face because it'll pull out all the moisture from the bottom layers to the top, and you'll dry out over time. But I've also talked about, obviously, like, the importance of um, sunscreen, which is still very important. Uh, But I think in the past, I was, like, really big into CeraVe and as a ceramide cream, as, like, the moisturizer. And I recently got this Korean brand ceramide cream called Iliyun. It's, like, I-L-L-I-Y-O-O-N. And I bought it online, and I wasn't totally sure if I got the right thing when it came because it was such a big tube. And normally in skincare, you're working with very little tubes because, um, I don't know, everything's it's really expensive. Uh, but anyway, I got this really big tube, and at first I was like, uh-oh, is this like a body cream or what's going on here? But since I started using it, I wake up with less of like the little white head bumpies that you sometimes get. Um, and I think it's just like a higher quality ceramide cream, basically, um, at seemingly a lower price, at least compared to, uh, what I was paying before to, for the amounts. So anyway, I really like it and I just really recommend it. Everyone should be using a ceramide cream that restores the, uh, skin barrier. Basically every time after you get your skin wet, you're breaking down the barrier so it's important to put something there to that's like basically occlusive to like you know close everything back up i'm trying to break down my skin barrier i'm yeah. trying to let the world in you know? <laughs> that's that's very enlightened of you baby yeah um i'll recommend married at first sight australia <sighs> i thought we were gonna do a whole episode on that we'll talk about some stuff okay you know? but it's a good show it is um it's a show where people sign up and then get paired off by the experts for a marriage yeah (laughs) you know kind of a pretend marriage kind of not Mm -hmm. they may be legally married i'm not sure they act like they are yeah i don't think so i'm sure they're not some of them have children there's no way they're just marrying a stranger and then what the person can like claim custody to your child or your house that you're raising your child in but it's a nice return i realized i missed um reality shows with more format yeah it's nice to see one that has kind of a strict you know formula and rules and everything again yeah instead of just the free form vanderpump type of shows yeah but this is you know like vanderpump a show where you get to know the characters pretty well um 
and it's also like couples therapy in the sense that you watch other couple couples like blender along and then you talk to each other about how you would totally do this differently or (laughs) you would behave differently and yeah yeah you end up like reaffirming how much of a better couple you are than the couples on the show (laughs) totally i guess what i was thinking when i was talking about formula too is we've been a little like we think the vanderpump season is still good even though a lot of people don't because they think it's too boring there's not enough drama we are happy without the same level of crazy drama but what is irritating is that they're getting they need they're at a point where they need to stop start talking about the fact that they're on a tv show and not just waiters yeah and you know like when some of the cast members are buying like 2.5 million dollar mansions in hollywood like it's time to start talking about the fact that yeah they didn't buy that on a bartender salary yeah they don't need a storyline where they ask lisa vanderpump if they can have the weekend off to to... go film her tv show Yeah. yeah yeah but you know watching a show that has a more strict formula like it's clear what's going on you know yeah so there's more room for reality real reality yeah. in that sense yeah that's yeah. true even though it's yeah you know it's the, contract, it's the obviously well it's like poetry it's the like, contrast between form and content you yeah. know and having a stricter form sometimes lets you have more creative content yeah yeah cool all right well that's our recommendations yep We've debated whether we should keep these up front or move them towards the end of the episode. Adam's worried that people will be like, where's the discussion? Yeah, because there are podcasts I listen to that (laughs) I have that problem with, basically. (laughs) So I guess if you feel really strongly one way or the other, feel free to let us know. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. we'll probably just keep it up front. If we move it to the end, we can become more and more like Slate and we can just start. Yeah. Be Our, we can fully become the people we want to be. Yeah. We should get <laughs> David like... Plotz and Julia Turner. <laughs> I, it would be fun to get like NPR mics and headsets and yeah. sit around a table. Yeah. And just like do the closet. same exact format. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Bring in one more person to like, yeah, lead us through topics and yeah. everything. And we'll do a month of just slate style shows. <laughs> Last time we talked, we talked about this, and you joked about how we love the Slate Culture Gap Fest was on the, the- reason we got into podcasting. <laughs> yeah, was on like uh, I think it was the episode where we talked about. I th- I th- I it was either Rupi, was it the Rupi Car and Milo episode? I think it was the or? more Me Too type of episode. Oh, yeah. so I, I think one it was the, the Aziz one then. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then someone like shared it, and then a bunch of people were like. I'm five minutes in and I can't believe that they're talking about how much they love Slate. What is this? Like, <laughs> yeah, but those were people who didn't know us yet. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, it's just a joke. Yeah, but um, it is kind of the reason we got into podcasting because we listened to it so and much. And we we're just like, this is so fucking yeah, terrible. Hey, we're a pre-Chapo podcast. We've yeah. been doing this, you know, since Long before time. then. Yeah, once every few months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, much less committed. But <laughs> okay, cool. All right, so let's talk about the Ilan Omar thing. Obviously, you guys know what we're talking about. Do we need to, like, tread over what I'll happened? I'll summarize it in, like, a sentence or two. Okay. So, Ilhan, Om- Ilhan Omar, if... I don't know how to say Ilhan. I think nobody well, does. Well, I think we should say that one of the reasons, besides, like, that she's, you know, really has great, like, politics and is part of this cohort of new congresswomen that are kind of occupying a space on the left that's been abandoned for a long time. I feel like one of the reasons she gets a lot of attention is because 
everyone likes to say Ilhan, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like people always say Ilhan, Ilhan. Like, we know <laughs> yeah. her, you know? Yeah, totally, like, yeah. But it's just a fun name to say. Yeah, it's I just think. a cool it's, name. It's a nice name, yeah. Uh, is she from Michigan? No, she is from Minnesota. She took Okay, I wanted to Keith say Allison's Minnesota, but then I thought seat. that was wrong. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. And she was a congressperson from Minnesota now and was tweeting that um, something about APAC giving money to people. Yeah, she said it's all I about the, the Benjamins. Yeah. Basically I, I saying... Did she say that? Yeah, yeah with like okay. little musical notes when she tweeted it. Oh, that's right, yeah. And I read that and was like, yeah, my mom always says to me, follow the money, honey, mm-hmm. as like a little thing, obviously, meant to be just a little way of saying like, yeah, yeah. money so drives when, the world. Like, <laughs> Yeah, so she was talking about why politicians, you know... I don't remember what the specific issue was. Why politicians support APAC, basically. Or, yeah, Israel. Yeah. Israel, yeah. Yeah, so. she was talking about Israel, and she said basically, like, <clears throat> you know, why, like, are we giving so much aid to Israel? Yeah, yeah. It's an apartheid state. And obviously people got mad and said it was anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah, when it's not. Yeah, and then after that, there was, like, a second brouhaha, because she kind of, like, had to apologize for that. Where she did apologize, and then there was a second kind of brouhaha where it was like, what did she say the second time? <laughs> I don't know. We're doing okay. We don't need to summarize. It. We're not <laughs> capable of summarizing. <laughs> because it. who cares? This is so stupid. Everybody we all knows. Know. It. Yeah. I mean, I remember in the moment when it happened, but this tells you how like little importance it has because <laughs> it occupies no space in my brain. But basically, we all know that this is not about anti-Semitism. This is about getting like congress to heal for apac essentially right like there's that's what all of the upset is about right all of those claims of anti-semitism i don't think anyone really believes that what she said was anti-semitic like i I certainly don't think i guess this is what we want to talk about actually ultimately is it like uh well we've talked about the against theory thing several times we have yet to actually do a dedicated episode on the topic but Mm -hmm. Basically, we want to talk about, um, well, like, as Adam and I were talking about it, I was saying to Adam, I feel like this is, like, a tool and a way that you can that you can use to, like, look at political performance um, because you politics is performance, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's a public performance. Um, the things that politicians say and write are essentially a body of work, you know. And so just, like, you can use the against theory thing to kind of look at, Mm-hmm. artists i think you can also look at politics through yeah. that lens and everything probably but maybe this could be a useful tool for people to parse this particular controversy yeah. so against theory for people who didn't hear whatever episode we said it in or whatever is an essay by walter ben michaels and somebody else in like 1982 ish and they were talking about kind of pushing back against some of the more postmodern death of the author type of theories of where meaning comes from in a work and they asserted that meaning comes from intent because if there wasn't intent there would be nothing to read basically and them asserting this is a critique of theory and doesn't actually determine how you interpret a text when we argue over what a text means we're all doing interpretation and we're all looking for the intent right. and that's the only way that we can have a debate about what something means yeah. because if you don't agree that it has some meaning that is you know locatable by everybody then 
you can't debate yeah what it means. the good example that we've talked about in the past too in the text is like uh the ocean and the poem do you want to explain that yeah and against theory they use the example of you're walking on a beach and you see written in the sand some lines of wordsworth um that i don't remember at this moment mm -hmm. <laughs> but then a wave comes up you're thinking oh that's great who wrote this poem here um, and a wave comes up and washes it away but as the wave recedes the receding waves write the next two lines in the sand yeah. so now you know that nobody wrote this yeah. it's a product of the ocean so either you think the ocean intended to write it or nobody intended to write it at all yeah which means it doesn't have a meaning it's just a really beyond that it's a really cool extent of physics and yeah. maybe you experience the grandeur of nature and, and randomness in the world when you see this like a Douglas Adams character. Yeah, well, it kind of highlights that you would go on two very different paths of understanding, <clears throat> right? Because either, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, the randomness of the world is incredible and like, wow. Or the ocean has sentience and is trying to communicate something to me. And like, what does the ocean mean by, yeah. you know, writing this poem out for me? Why me? Why, you know, like you would start to like really wonder about again the the intentions of the author the ocean right like yeah. so i think in both cases you can imagine how like understanding whether or not there's intent behind something really shows you how you can go into completely mm -hmm. different directions totally. of interpretation so it's not really about intent like you know jk rowling sat down to write harry potter and she has this secret code of what it means it's not about intent like that it's just she literally wrote things on the page, and she's the and one she who did it. she had intention when she wrote it. Every because, single word yeah. she wrote, she intended to write because yeah. she did it. Yeah. And that's when we read it, that's what we read. Yeah. So it doesn't, it, it also doesn't um, throw out the possibility that an author has a subconscious meaning, you know, partly because we all grow up in a society and we're, you know, formed by that society in certain ways. And when you read an author's work, it doesn't mean it's wrong to look at maybe some unconscious bias or things yeah. that they did in the work yeah, yeah. in like fact people... if intent doesn't matter then you can't really talk about that yeah because then you only have your experience of the work yeah okay i don't want to go on too long okay well so but, let's... but the ilhan omar thing is a yeah. great example of it yeah so do you want to talk about how it relates to that you want to get us started sure um well basically what i what i think through this lens of against theory is that people who think she's being anti-semitic there's two possibilities. One, a lot of Democrats just take money from APAC and they're using yeah. it as cover to say any criticism of this is fundamentally wrong to discredit the criticism. So they're taking a bad faith, cynically, yeah. a cynical bad faith, not even interpretation of their words because they don't care what she meant to say. Yeah. It just, they want to put it in this context where it could be seen as anti Semitic so that they can dispense with the criticism. And that's part of what against theory comes down to in, in the end of the essay, is if you don't believe that the intent of somebody's words matter, then you can't disagree about the words. Yeah. Um, you, you can't argue for your interpretation being right or wrong. The other interpretation that a lot of people have is that, you know, Muslims hate Jews and they want to kill Jews and she's a Muslim, so she's anti-Semitic. Right. So you have to have like an Islam, you have to have an Islamophobic un either read of her or bias that you're, you yeah. know, kind of projecting onto her to yeah. read her words as anti-Semitic because to be clear, like, I think one important distinction here, right, to 
she said no, nothing about Jewish people. She was talking yeah. specifically about like APAC and, you know, shouldn't even say about really like donors or something. You know, there was no part in which she's like attacking people. It was just about foreign policy and this lobbying group, right? Um, so it's very hard to like, in an honest interpretation, read her intentions as anti-Semitic because they're literally not about Semites at yeah, all, totally. you know? But I think the other interesting thing to talk to talk about here that you mentioned, which I think is the trap that AOC fell into and yeah. a lot of people, is this idea that uh, you can't basically like, you can't have disagreement without intent because I feel like AOC was like really interested in privileging the voices of Jewish people, and so she says like, well. Jewish people said that they were offended and hurt by these comments and this is like a teachable moment we can all learn and you know and basically what it does is say like well I don't know your intentions and I can't interpret them or know them Mm -hmm. but I can see what people are saying and therefore I'm going to you know go with like that reading or understand there's yeah, again there's gonna no, ignore intent yeah That's, there's no room you know, for disagreement even like yeah you're saying like, to summarize i want to summarize what i said just really quickly because i thought of a better way to say it like either so if you're looking at her words either you interpret that she has a subconscious meaning because she is is muslim and hates jews or you don't care about the intent because her intent is just readily apparent yeah like, yeah so the alternative is to not care about the intent or yeah. to pretend that it doesn't matter. Yeah, and in that case, you have... So then on one side, Ilhan Omar saying like what she said, and on the other side, you have various people, <laughs> some Jews, some Meghan McCain, whoever, you know, saying like, I this was anti-Semitic, I read this as anti-Semitic, I hear this as anti-Semitic, and therefore it is anti-Semitic, right? It doesn't matter what Ilhan Omar intended um, because this is how I experience this. And, like, I understand where that impulse comes from. That's why I was, like, saying, like, I feel like probably AOC, like, a lot of people on the left's first instinct is to privilege marginalized voices because they've been marginalized and we should definitely hear people when they tell us, like, uh, this is a racist dog whistle or whatever like sometimes like as you know white people for example you don't understand or hear things the same way that people who have had certain kind of coded language thrown at them their entire lives here right so i understand like the desire and intention to do that and it's like a nice one but i also think that what we run up against a little bit here is kind of the the limit both not reading intention and and not understanding the importance of intention, but also like the limits of standpoint theory, because, you know, standpoint theory is this idea that we all kind of stand at different points in space based on our like, and whatever, some plane, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, based on, you know, the experiences that we have. I'm a woman, I'm an immigrant, I'm American. So I have like, you know, like per like personally experienced both as like an imperialist and as you know someone from a third world country or whatever like i have this particular standpoint that other people don't have and that's like important to politics it's the idea that knowledge is situated in an experience yeah yeah 
but I think this really shows us the limitations of this type of um, understanding of politics because you have, like, the people who are speaking up, I guess basically I feel like the, this theory relies on everyone just being the best humans possible, like very honest, very wanting everyone to just understand what they think and feel and their experience and maybe that'll help like us come to some kind of agreement. But in reality, like people have many multiple interests, they have personal like self-interest that you know a lot of the people who spoke out and drove you know kind of beat the drums were like a pack activists who then came out and said oh we're gonna like get rid of these congresswomen in several years it doesn't even matter what they say and stuff like that right so it's not like this person only has it's just as a jewish person speaking they feel aggrieved it's also as a person with a personal self-interest because that's their job is to do politics you know like it's um there's this idea i think in the left that like oh you can only speak on things if you have personal experience or if your identity correlates to the issue in some way and that gives you some kind of special insight but i think like this gives away the lie because we can't just have israelis speaking on like Israel, United States policy towards Israel, you know? Mm -hmm. And we can't just look at someone's identity because they're a Muslim woman and say, well, she's probably against Israelis because she's a, because of her identity, right? Because potentially her standpoint puts her at odds with, you know, these other people. So I don't know. I thought we should talk about that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, for me, it really comes back to death of the author and, against theory more than standpoint theory yeah i just wanted to talk a little bit about the limitations that this illustrates because i think it really does right like i think we can all see that yeah well i guess so yeah like you know on chapo uh it was it was mostly i think just amber and will talking about it right and amber was saying that she was saying you know some people are just being histrionic sometimes people are just being they're just overreacting or they're being histrionic yeah but i don't think it really comes down to that or i would modulate that a little bit to say i mean if intent matters then it doesn't matter what their experience of it is as much as it matters what she meant and if you're trapped in like aoc's response right um do you want to summarize it a little bit yeah but before i do that i want to say like two things are happening here i feel like there's a public political sphere and there's obviously like a private interpersonal sphere and in the private interpersonal sphere like i've worked with kids you know you teach kids to say things like when you call me stupid it makes me feel bad or whatever so that they learn to tell their peers in a way that their peers can't say nah or no i didn't or whatever so that you reduce conflict basically between mm-hmm. peers yeah you express how how you were made to feel which no one can take away from you so that you can get your so you can get through a difficult conversation basically especially if you're like an eight-year-old with like limited emotional <laughs> intelligence <laughs> you know And I think that's, like, really useful. And I think a lot of people have learned interpersonal communication tools like that. And I think that that's where some of this also comes from or in this version of standpoint theory. And I'm sure that's a a tool for handling activist spaces, too, right? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, we can also talk about part of the thing with AOC's other thing, which is like, uh, oh, this isn't a call out. This is a call in, which is also a, a way of dealing in like in movements, in activist spaces. Right. Like we might do a call in of um whatever, a specific organization or people who are somehow behaving in some way that people see as like antithetical to the movement or values of the movement or whatever. But that's because you have this sense of who the activists in this movement are, who are the we that we, that we are calling you in. We're not calling you out. We're not putting you on a blast in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. We're calling you in in this kind of safe space, basically. But also, you know, we need to correct something that's gone wrong. So when AOC, like, talks about calling in Ilhan Omar during this versus calling her out, it's very confusing. I think, like, a lot of this stuff is, like, yeah, it comes from interpersonal communication because she is talking about how people were made to feel. Like I was saying, that's something you can't take away from people. Okay, great. She's talking about, yeah, calling people in instead of... These are good tools in interpersonal relations, But when you're having, like, a public political discussion, which is what, I mean, Twitter is a giant town hall, whatever you want to call it. Like, it's a public space. Like, you're speaking in front of everyone, you know. There's no way to call anyone in. You can only call people Mm -hmm. out. Yeah. So, I I think, like, that was a big mistake to, just because you say I'm calling you in. Yeah, yeah. Because if you, you know, I like trying to be nice about things instead of call people out. but. There's no way, you pointed out, there's no way to do that on Twitter, right? Yeah. If you make an, a statement, if you make a tweet in response to her, that's it's like... It's public. It's a call. It's out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but even if you're trying to be nice, right? Yeah. You're saying, like, that's not it. Or, yeah. you know, do better. Like, it all sounds passive-aggressive mm-hmm. and uh, just aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think we need to get back to now talking about intent behind political performance because... Like, every single one of these people we're talking about, Omar, Bernie, uh, you know, AOC, whoever, like, they're not, presumably, I imagine, just firing off tweets without thinking about them at all, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of them are. Well, sometimes. I, I wonder about AOC a little bit. I'm like, girl, put down that phone. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but usually there is, like, thought and energy before this because it is a public communication before this public communication goes out right and so in that way like i think one of the biggest like things that kind of showed the misunderstanding here was when aoc tried to respond to this and a lot of people including myself were upset with her response because she essentially equated um ilhan omar's comments just criticizing the influence of APAC, the undue influence of Israel on our foreign policy, to, I think, a congressman shouting about how what people need to go back to Puerto Rico on oh, the yeah. House something floor like that, or something yeah. like that. Um, those are actually racist statements mm-hmm. and sentiments, right? Like, this is not the same. These are not equal. Uh, and just because they both hurt people in the communities of their like in, their like intended target doesn't mean that the intentions are equal and doesn't mean that they should be treated as equal. Totally. But if you don't look at intention, if you just look at 
how people react to yeah. the comments, then they are equal. And, yeah. and then that's why you have AOC tweeting a tweet where it's like, you're giving legs to this thing that doesn't exist. Yeah, Why yeah. are you doing this? You know, it's it's even worse than just like it's it's to the point where it's like the thing that Kane said about the economy, where it's not you're betting on who's going to win the beauty contest. You're betting on who's you're betting on what people are going to bet on who's going to win the beauty contest. Yeah. Like it's not even about just people's experience. It's about what other people may or may not experience. Yeah. So it's about getting upset on behalf of a hypothetical person who's upset. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, obviously it's like really not very useful and like yeah. morally deluded to uh, pretend like intentions don't don't exist and don't matter, right? Yeah. So, and that's what I was saying, like I feel like this is a tool because when we look at like Ilan Omar's comments, we can say, well, I think her intention here was not to hurt Jewish people or offend Jewish people even or whatever. Mm. I think she was trying to make a very clear critique of our foreign policy, of the influence of money mm -hmm. on our politics. She's made similar criticisms of Saudi Arabia and yeah. she's a Somali refugee. So she's been at the other end of our foreign policy, yeah. like in the context, like we can you know, I can't get into her heart, but I can imagine that given the context of what we know about her, of her public statements and writings and whatever, that this is a person who has a pretty robust critique of American imperialism and foreign adventurism. Yeah. And therefore, in that context, we can see that this was a critique, a political critique about another country, about another yeah, a yeah. foreign actor versus... Uh, the, I forget who the guy was that she mentioned that should have, that she was saying basically AOC was saying should have been like censured or rebuked or whatever by Congress. But it's like, let's take an easier example that we all know, like Donald Trump, right? Like we know that when Donald Trump says things that offend people, he has a history of saying things that offend yeah, yeah. people. He if finds he's... marginalized people like, disgusting and mocks you know yeah. disabled people and if he says something that seems anti-black we know he didn't want black people in his apartment exactly yeah. exactly so we can look at the context of who he is and his remarks yeah. and the speeches and i don't well the writing the twittering that and, he's done and we can debate what his intent was to yeah. talk about what his words mean exactly if you ignore intent then you can't do that anymore. Well, and then all we're left with is just the people, again, on the other side, which in in both cases, they're offended. Yeah. But that's not enough to condemn someone. It you equalizes know? both of those offenses. Exactly. Because... But they're not equal. We know that Ilhan Omar is far yeah. morally superior to Donald, everyone is yeah. to Donald Trump, right? It reminds me of when, in the Beauty YouTubers episode, we were talking about um, how low-class white people say things that are hurtful and are in that sense racist but aren't intentionally racist mm. and that I had friends who would make jokes like that when we were young and I was never comfortable with it and yet I didn't know black people they did they were more comfortable with black people than I was right. you know right um, not to, obviously not to say oh they have a black friend so they can't be racist or whatever but just like you have to look at what people intend yeah. Otherwise, you can't even disagree about what they mean. But this is politics, and we have to have conflict. We have to yeah, have disagreement. Exactly. And if we don't, 
then we can't resolve things. Yeah. We can't get at what things mean. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking a lot about against theory versus death of the author. I have to think more about it and maybe try to write things down about <laughs> it. But, you know, when you read... I like Roland Barthes a lot who wrote Death of the Author in the late 60s or 70s or something. Um, the timeline gets mixed up because, you know, he wrote it in France and then it came to America like 15 years later and had oh. a huge impact. Okay. But anyway, like when you read what he wrote, it sounds so liberatory yeah. because he's such a great writer. It feels democratizing, it, right? Yeah, it feels democratizing because it's all about dethroning the author yeah. from the work and, yeah. and deciding that we, you know, as a reader, each one of us can make our own meaning, right? Um, because, because of, and he's not wrong about his analysis of the way a text works, like, if you were never, if you grew up and there were no books and then you found one, it wouldn't mean anything to you. Yeah. Even if you could read the words, like you wouldn't have anything to compare it to. So you wouldn't know like Gulliver's Travels is a satire. Right. Um, only because works exist in what he calls it in translation, a tissue of citations. Can we make meaning out of yeah. them? And that's true. I mean, that is the position of being a reader. Yeah. But when you're only looking at it that way, you're really living in an atomized world where only your individual experience matters or I guess somebody else's individual experience if you rightfully choose to defer to it. Um, and I think there's a real big political thing there because Bart, he came to prominence after May of 68 hmm. when the new young left-wing tendencies rebelled against the old more Marxist communist ones and thought they were going to create a better world that never came to fruition, right? right. And I think there's something really connected between that moment and, you know, this work, Death of the Author, which came about in that moment. Yeah. And versus Walter Ben Michaels was writing completely out of time. Yeah. Everybody hates what he wrote, especially when he wrote it, because it was so <laughs> against the current of, you know, in the 80s, uh, the American university was becoming more and more theory driven, mm -hmm. and critical theory driven. And... uh yeah, like he joked when he was on Dead Pundits that I'm hated politically for the things I write with Adolf Reed, and I'm hated in literature for the things I write about literature yeah. because he's out of step. And he was he has always, I guess, been a socialist, and he was writing at a time when people were turning against that. Yeah, But, you know, in that framework of against theory, we can actually come together as a mass of people instead yeah. of just a group Atomized of individuals. People, yeah. yeah. And actually, you know, try to find meaning in things. Yeah, because also at the end of the day, we have to find meaning together. Otherwise, there like there can be no movement or progress or anything, right? So, I mean, in this instance, I think most of the left is pretty unified against the idea that you know, Ilana. I think because the intention is. Uh, so obvious like most and in the context too you know this is also like um when scalia right says like uh well we can't look at what um lawmakers were thinking when they write yeah. a certain law yeah. or whatever we just have to look at the the, the constitution yeah the text yeah. the constitution we have to be bound by that construct the text mm -hmm. of the constitution and, you know it's not a living document yeah. he like, said we shouldn't look at the legislative record of what the debate was on the floor when they were passing it yeah yeah and you know basically once you start to do that once you like eliminate other pertinent information you can pretty much create 
a world, a moral universe, whatever, in which, like, everything that you want, like, however you want to interpret things, that is the correct way to interpret them, right? Mm -hmm. So Scalia can say, absolutely, the Second Amendment is meant to provide individuals with guns, even though... To protect their home. Right. That's what they found in in Heller, the Heller decision. Right. the, yeah, it provides for a right to defend yourself in your home. Even though the the text, which is what he claims he's all about, says specifically a well-regulated militia yeah. who had militias, states have militias, right? Like, yeah. you don't have a well-regulated militia in your home. Mm-hmm. like so. But because he doesn't care what the intent was, he just posits his own yeah, meaning for be- it. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. once you eliminate all other information and context from the text and you know you take the role of the author essentially while your yeah feelings I, and intentions or whatever can be anything you want them to be yeah i mean the thing about against theory is that he doesn't it, he doesn't say meaning comes from intent he says it's synonymous with intent mm-hmm. and i guess when you dethrone intent from a work then you can take up that throne exactly. and you can dictate exactly. what it means yeah and you can dictate it to other people if you have a position of power like scalia or the people the democrats with a lot of money and influence in the press who you know, join the bandwagon against Omar. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's what I think people need to realize. Like AOC's stance on it can be weaponized. Yeah. 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 Well, and it has. I mean, the Democrats at large stance on it has been weaponized, right? Because now the Republicans are constantly talking about, uh, oh, she has to be deceited from her foreign uh, relations committee. See, oh, she's anti-semitic she uh, basically like she is not uh suitable for public life and we we need to get rid of her yeah and it's like they know enough to know that they couldn't start that drumbeat totally you know what i mean but once the democrats started that drumbeat buddy they're bringing the whole band you know (laughs) like she was just attacking elliot abrams and the venezuelan intervention you know impending Mm -hmm. intervention Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. then a week later, you know, they're going to seize on this opportunity. Right. And when Democrats put out a statement like, oh, we condemn all bigotry. Yeah. Including this. Yeah, we then, all know it's a subtweet. I mean. Then it makes it harder for them to defend her if they actually wanted to. Yeah. As a, you know, on the basis of her foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we covered that pretty well. Okay. Do we have anything else we want to talk about? Or should we just keep this short? How far in are we? Let's look at this. Okay. Uh, well, the other thing we can talk about that happened literally just this morning was that the Justice Department announced that they're indicting, I think, like 40 people, including Lori Laughlin, who played Aunt Becky on Full House, and oh. Francis McDormand. Is that the other one? Um, no, it was Felicity Huffman. Oh, Felicity Huffman. That's right. I get those two confused. Um, who... Uh, are, you know, obviously actresses, um, that basically these uh, various people participated in different aspects of bribery and cheating scandals for college admissions. So um, it came out that with Felicity Huffman, her daughter went in to take an SAT that she thought was just being proctored by whoever, you know. And actually, Frances McDormand had paid a guy Felicity Huffman. Oh, God. I don't know why in my head it's just Francis McDormand. Okay. Felicity Huffman had paid a guy who was like a life coach or something, but basically facilitated 
this scandal to pay the proctor or to pay to have a proctor there who, when her daughter turned her test in, pulled it to the side and corrected a bunch of the oh, answers. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, what's her face? The other one, Lori Lachlan. Her daughters are Instagram celebrities. And apparently one of them wanted to go to USC and like looking at the text, I mean, they are so lazy and entitled. Like, uh, for one thing, the in her case, her daughter knew that they were just like faking her college application, basically, and just went along with it, including posing on an erg machine so that she could pretend she was on a crew team um, for extracurriculars. And uh, then eventually, like, there's also an exchange where. Um, She's supposed to, like, the daughter's supposed to complete the application, just, like, the part where you, like, write your name and shit mm-hmm. to send it in. And uh, she's not getting that done, so Lori Lachlan just makes sure that the guy they're paying also completes that part of the application. <laughs> so in addition to just, like, bribery, there's also just, like, really basic laziness yeah. and, and entitlement happening. There's another guy who is not famous, but he's, a, like, a venture capitalist or something, and he basically had someone come in to coach his daughter on how to fake a learning disability wow. so that they could take the spot, essentially, of a <laughs> child with a learning disability. <laughs> and also the resources. Wow. Like, it's crazy. Um, Did you see the story going around about a preschool? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What was that? It was like... Um, there was a it was guy... like an inciting trail, an inside trade yeah, deal. Yeah, it was uh, some like, I don't know, if he, he was like a stock analyst or something like that. And he basically had a deal with like the head of AT&T to get his twins into some private, you know, preschool. elite preschool yeah. uh, that he claims was harder to get into than Harvard. And as a result of that happening... The guy, first of all, he gave a million dollar donation to the preschool after his twins got in. Wow. But in addition to that, he changed AT&T's stock from neutral to buy. Yeah. So then they made like a bunch of fucking money. And then he got like a slap on the wrist for yeah. the whole thing. Yep. I mean, so and it was he, worth it. <laughs> he also had blatant emails to a friend where he was like, oh, a lot of people think I did that for this corrupt reason. But no, it was actually for this corrupt mm-hmm. preschool reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then he's like, I've always hated AT&T or whatever, but this is the one time I voted for them. And then I went back to hating on them. It's like... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I want to say about this is that, yes, this is very bad, but also all college admissions <laughs> are the result of uh, familial wealth and access to resources and it's basically a big pay-to-play scandal all yeah. the way across the board um, not just at this high-end level right um, so we've talked about before how um, I went to we both went to public high schools and co- whatever all school public school but in Ohio no, but college, I went, we went to private college. no no high school and yeah. below you went to a Christian school for a while like for two years, because <laughs> because my parents just care about education, and right. that was a better school than the school system where we lived. But we moved to a very good school system for that reason. Yeah, that's where that's why people move to this nice suburb because they have a, an amazing school system. It's a public school with you know PhDs teaching your 
math classes and stuff. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of funding, pretty much like you, like when we would talk sometimes, you'd be like, oh, yeah, there's always like a levy here and it never passes. And I was like, oh, every levy that they've ever tried has passed at my school. Like, I mm-hmm. feel like. I don't know, at least when I was growing up, it was like everyone was really centered around the school, the whole community's there for the school system. So um, the teachers are like some, maybe the highest paid in Columbus. Like Multiple times the the teachers and like PTA would gather us together as kids and and we would join rallies to pass the pep. The the, levy? The levy, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we didn't have to do any organizing because we had to like protest for school money. So I didn't because, okay, so I guess what I want to say is like sometimes in left spaces, there's like, uh, this is my standpoint as a privileged person. Uh, but you know, there's like a, I, I saw someone tweet as prolier than thou, you know, like more proletariat than thou, um, stance that happens and Again, I understand the instinct to want to privilege marginalized people, marginalized voices. Who wants to hear from the privileged kids anyway? Like, we've heard enough from them. But sometimes it's really important to hear from people like that because you don't know all the ways that you're being screwed. Uh, (laughs) And... And also on the flip side, like, I didn't know that other people didn't have these... The same access to this stuff because... You just know your experience, you know? So until we started talking, I, it, I I didn't know that, like, you didn't take an SAT prep class because I thought everyone pays to take an SAT prep class because why wouldn't you? They guarantee your score will go up by, like, two to 300 points just for taking the class, you yeah. know? So, like, this is a very simple way, but, it, but those classes are expensive that I think maybe, like, 800 bucks, maybe more, that you know, my parents bought me access, essentially, right? I had a math tutor. Like, I I was having trouble in a math class. I had a math tutor. What, at the school? No, no, no. My parents. This is private before I get into what the school system does. Okay. But I just want to say, like, I had, um, I took an honors English class that was, like, really, had a very difficult teacher that was just, like, very hard grader. And because, like, my parents paid for an English tutor because they wanted to make sure that my grades didn't drop, right? So uh, rather than, like, me struggling or trying to find resources at school or whatever, it was, like, just keep your grades up, you know? Like, that's very important. And we're going to pay to make sure, basically, that your grades stay up by having these extra resources available to you. Mm-hmm. Also, by the way, like, I had friends who were on the swim team who had private swimming coaches, like... I mean, this goes across the board, right? That's an extracurricular that helps people get into college. Like, But then in addition to that, uh, which to be clear, I think everyone should have access to a tutor. Like if you're having trouble in math class, you should have access to... I'm glad my parents did that. It's much better than falling behind. It's just that most people can't pay someone to come in and privately like teach their child for an hour in addition to all the other things you have to pay for school like so my high school like i've told you before we had essays in every single class including gym class to teach us how to write i think the first time i had to write a college admissions essay was in my sophomore year (laughs) so by the time i was in my senior year which also for english class i had to write what on a topic that was essentially a college admissions essay i had 
plenty of experience writing college admissions mm-hmm. essays, not to mention that I also had access to a private tutor to run my essay by. You know, we had obviously like honors classes, AP classes. I signed up for an IB class because we had dedicated college counselors. Um, I had the counselor talk to me and said, I don't think you should do this because this is going to be a very hard class and it can drop your GPA, but you won't have enough time to complete an IB diploma, so it won't be worth it. (laughs) You know? So this was a college counselor, what, at your school? So we had an entire college counseling center separate from the counseling center, right? (laughs) Like, so you have like counselors where you talk about like your classes or your emotional feelings or whatever. And then we had a college counseling center that brought in, like, when you're a senior, you look at the announcements and you see, like, every week what colleges or college representatives are coming in. coming to see you. Yeah. And uh, you can meet with them. We had a guy from the Army who came to our cafeteria. (laughs) I mean, that existed, too, but everyone pretty much was like... That's all we had. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the only person who came to talk to us. Well, see, yeah, we had, like, college recruiters you know that come in every week like multiple you know every day multiple probably towards the end um and you know the college admissions counselors make sure that you have everything together for your admission that you get the recommendations on time from the teachers that you need like they're dedicated to helping you get through this process basically uh they also there if you didn't have access to a private tutor there's tutors there to help you write your college admissions essays and things like that. <laughs> so this is what I'm saying when I'm like, you know, yeah, it's like bad that those parents did that and bought their, or changed stocks or whatever to, you know, buy their kids access. But everyone does this to whatever capacity they can. That's why sometimes yeah. I get annoyed too when I hear like people say, oh, uh, well, you know, the rich, you know, they, they're not as close-knit with their kids. Like, we may be poor, but we're a close-knit family or whatever. Because yeah. it really provides, like, I don't Cover. know. Yeah. It's like- and it's like, no, the rich love their kids, and they will take your eyes out, and they will also take your safety net to make sure they have the advantage to yeah. get what they need and want, you know? Yeah. There was a big headline story, you know, there have been a few stories lately that are like, Oh, I was a, a cable woman and I worked at the Cheney's house. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. I saw one that was like, I worked for decades for rich people and I would never want to be rich was the headline. And she was like a cleaning person. But then you read the story and it's like, oh, this woman, she got divorced. <laughs> and this woman, <laughs> yeah, it was all just normal stuff happening to yeah. them. Like, you know, they had a loveless marriage or somebody cheated. Which also happens to poor people. It's just that yeah. poor people don't have money when they get divorced. Yeah, it's just yeah. less glamorous. Yeah. It's less, you wouldn't make a movie about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, so the people, reason... Oh. Yeah, being rich, does it doesn't hurt you. Yeah. 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 So the reason I'm telling you this isn't to brag about my awesome experience or to say, like, you know... Uh, because, like, you didn't have access to that. And we went to the same college. So obviously, yeah. like, it's not that things are so you can't overcome or whatever but i'm just i just want people to understand that um, there is a huge obstacle it's a huge obstacle yeah i mean i didn't know how to apply for college i think maybe one of our counselors helped us if we were smart kids yeah but you know that was the same counselor that did everything else completely and i don't you know there just weren't a lot of expectations at my school either. Yeah. So, like, um, 
maybe 20% of the kids went to college. Um, and I remember when we, at our graduation, the principal gave a speech about, that was basically like, I know and you know not all these kids are going to college, but they're good people and they're going to be good workers and they're going to raise families. <laughs> and, you know, you're just not, you're not taught that that stuff's for you. Yeah. So there's an even, there's a hurdle in that sense too. Beyond like not having the actual resources that you need, there is like a, a psychological hurdle that, you know, I just, I had parents who were college educated and I always did well in school. So it wasn't a problem for me, but then, you know, I had a lot of friends who I felt like I'm not smarter than them. They're as smart as I am, but they didn't have the same expectations for themselves or from their parents. Yeah, um, or the school. Yeah, and even though I did, I still didn't really know what I was doing. So I still had a lot of obstacles to overcome to, I don't know. Saying obstacles to overcome makes it sound so weird. Like, I know what you're saying. Well, I think yeah, people know what you're I saying. I wasn't, like, discriminated against. I just didn't have the same level of resources yeah yeah and i told you um you know we didn't have ap classes at my school but ohio had a great program that we called sb 140 after the bill that, yeah where you can if you're a kid with good grades you can like take college courses for, you can leave high school to take you can take like half days in high school to take college yeah. classes basically you can like junior and senior year yeah. um that was when i started really like enjoying having friends and hanging out with friends so i didn't leave school and i did it at night mm -hmm. so i was like doing the night classes at youngstown state university with all the adults and i had great teachers and i learned a lot in those classes but the expectations on you as a student were still so different that when i went away to college a private small school um liberal arts college i didn't understand that i was like supposed to have opinions yeah so i got assigned essays and i would just you know, take it seriously and read a lot and just regurgitate what I listen to. Because in my mind, I'm just learning from other people. I don't have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know that that was what was expected of me until, you know, after I got like C's my first semester. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember even when we met, you were like, you would get really flustered about writing an essay. And I'd be like, no, there's like a formula to writing an essay. Like, you know, and here's kind of like, just here's how you do the outline and then just fill in the spaces and you got your paper like basically written mm -hmm. and I remember one time like we were at the computer lab together like late at night and you were just like we both had a Chinese history class together and you were just like super stressed out about how to even get started and it was like oh I've done this so many times because I had to write an essay for every fucking class that I yeah. you know it was just like the preparedness with which I came into the experience versus what you came, even though we both got into the same school was still like a substantially different experience. I imagine. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and the reason that I'm saying all this isn't to like, you know, hurrah, congratulate me, <laughs> you know, whatever, but just to point out that, you know, there are at every level, just like major, I guess we're using obstacles as a word a lot today, but major obstacles to keep you in your class position and to keep you um, from taking someone else's place, essentially, is how I think a lot of richer people see it, right? Because mm -hmm. capitalism is either I get this spot or you do, you know? Yeah. Someone has to win and someone has to lose, right? Like, that I think people are super unaware of, and I think that that's also part of the reason why, like, affirmative action 
and stuff like that. Anytime you try to even like hear a conversation about that, it just disintegrates into like really stupid yeah. conversation because people don't really understand how much affirmative action is essentially taking like a class affirmative action. The entire system yeah. of, of college admittance is Isn't it in the first like, place. I forget if it's like 40 or 60% of like Harvard or just Ivy League kids in general or are like legacy. legacy. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it. But even if you're not legacy, you know, I'm telling you, like, there, this was a class difference, essentially, right? Like, the, the school I went to is like upper middle class. Yeah. And there were just a lot of resources and also like you're saying 20% of the kids or something went to college and my school my year it was like 98.6 yeah so every like there was, one kid went to LA to become an actor or something and that's I why it wasn't 100% one kid because it's like kind of a republican district a couple I think like one or two kids went into the army oh and that's who is the percentage <laughs> you know yeah um but yeah so I just I don't know, this scandal just really reminded me of how important it is to talk about some of our different experiences from time to time, to be a class trader, to explain Mm -hmm. sometimes how different the experiences of growing up um, just in, you know, a a different class in this society than other Yeah, you didn't even go to like an elite private school. No, this was a public school. I know, and that's the other thing is like when people talk about, oh, private schools are, I mean, public schools are failing, blah, blah, blah. no. Well-funded public schools are mm. the best schools you can get, in my opinion. Yeah. And I know that they can be an incredible experience for 98.6% of the students go on to college, where a significant number of the students go to Ivy League schools. Like, yeah. Because everyone, I feel like, who wanted a scholarship got a scholarship, you know, like because when you have a well-funded public school system, it's just as good, if not better, than a public school, uh, private school system because they can't kick anyone out in the same way that, you know, private schools, if you don't have enough tuition or they don't like whatever, yeah. just kick you out, you know, like charter schools. Yeah. Um, another one interesting kind of side note about the experience difference. Another thing I didn't understand for probably a couple years in college and I never got really comfortable doing it I didn't realize you're supposed to talk to your professors mm. like if you have a problem you let them know or if you have a question you can ask them after class yeah or you can ask them for you know makeup work and stuff yeah I didn't know any of that yeah because that's not the like educational model that I grew up with yeah totally yeah, yeah and, but it's also a, a like it's a I think it's a really significant class difference is the way you're taught to treat authority like that. that's what i was gonna say yeah. because in this case the difference is like i'm supposed to submit to authority and do what they tell me by the deadline that they give me or i'm paying to go to this school and you <laughs> yeah. work for me motherfucker yeah, <laughs> you know totally. and if you don't answer to me my parents who pay will definitely be calling oh, your yeah. boss you, you know? told me that kids at your school were never going to get in trouble for drinking or oh yeah or anything no Again, I don't know. I haven't been there in a while. But when I was growing up, the understanding what I saw happen was that, you know, the cops would pick kids up and they would take them back to their parents. And then the parents in the school would deal with the kids. (laughs) Yeah. The cops didn't give them a record. You know, maybe they got detention or extra whatever. But there was no way that parents were going to let. And in fact... 
the year after I graduated, um, whenever I'd go back to visit like younger friends, they would talk about how um, their prom, uh, the cops, uh, like, I guess like some teachers opened a limo or something for the cops to bust students that were underage drinking because there was alcohol in the limo. And the parents were suing <laughs> the cops in the school for yeah. basically like doing that, That's like funny. trespass. So they're keeping them in line. Yeah. You know, they're reminding them, no, like, how do you think every levy here passes? Who do you think pays for that shit? Yeah. Like, I have money. I sit have back lawyers. Down. Yeah. I pay my taxes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's just a completely different understanding of your role in this yeah. relationship. A year or two after I left my high school, they started bringing drug dogs in to sniff lockers. Oh my God. Yeah. And it's a, you know, 95% white, small rural school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've told you before about when I worked in Erie and they had the girls, uh, the students in general, there was in the public school uh, built into the floor line in the center of the hallways Mm -hmm. that the kids were supposed to walk on and not like deviate from unless they're going to their locker or into a classroom. They're not supposed to talk after the bell rings and they're just supposed to walk quietly in line, single file to get to their next class. In my high school on Fridays, we played music in between the changing <laughs> periods. And kids got to pick. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, like, student council kids or whoever picked yeah. the music. So, and we played, like, like, like La Tigra and stuff like that, <laughs> you know? So it wasn't just shitty songs, like, yeah. So it's just a huge difference in, because you're not treated like you're in prison, <laughs> you find that environment to be a completely different experience, like, learning. In fact, I remember uh, when I was in elementary school, my parents were, when I was changing over from my, um, like, Catholic school to the public schools where I grew up, uh, my parents talked to, obviously, the principals about, like, two different um, elementary schools I could go to and they really liked one of the principals who basically said like oh my job is just to make um, coming to school fun for the kids <laughs> everything else will fall in place if they have fun here you know and his whole, he would like throw this like foxtail and come out and play with us at recess and it was like very much like that school I still have super super fond memories because it was such a fun wonderful happy environment and I don't I can't imagine there was anyone who felt like unsafe going there or unhappy being there for, you know, some kind of long period of time or anything yeah. like that. Like there it wasn't like if you got in trouble, it's like harsh punishment coming down, you know. Yeah. It was much more of a sense of like, yeah, you need to learn the rules, but you know, we're here to have fun. The principal isn't, oh, you're going to the principal's office. The principal comes out and plays with us at recess. Like Yeah. So it's just a really different understanding i think yeah and my school was small so like we had a good relationship with the teachers and the principal and everything i'm sure it would have been different if it was a big city school like erie okay one other detail about my high school for literature fans it's where noah cicero also went to high school (laughs) but like maybe five or six years before me Mm. yeah pretty cool. cool pretty cool i found that out when i saw um an interview with him and the reporter was like, and I drove to uh, this little town and I asked him where he wanted to meet for an interview. And he said to meet him at the Yankee Kitchen. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Yankee Kitchen. That's the only restaurant in my town. <laughs> That's the, one of the three businesses in my town. 
Uh, by contrast, for golf fans, my town is where Jack Nicholas <laughs> went to high school, and that's why he's the Golden Bear. Oh, yes. Anyway. All right. So do you want to pick, even though I didn't really get to because we did not release our valentine's day episode i know you had songs you wanted to pick so you can pick oh, what we were but now you're to. putting me on the spot because i haven't thought about it well should i just pick one and dub my voice in saying what it is <laughs> maybe um well i can play I'll, I'll just pick something now okay i'll play a song by bloodthirsty butchers but i don't know which song they're um 90s japanese like indie punk band that i have been re-listening to and, and getting into again cool yeah. did you get into them when you were in high school yeah cool all right so we'll write out to that yeah stick around if you like um that <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like pixies a little emo i was reading some interesting stuff about how they come from hokkaido you know mm, in yeah. the north mm-hmm. so it's it's hokkaido milk bread yeah but it's like you know if a band here got really popular in like an indie scene and they came from oh like built to spill like they came from idaho or something yeah yeah cool all right, so we'll write out to something from them. You can find us on iTunes, Sound- SoundCloud, and Facebook at Cold Pizza Party. I'm going to keep it real with you. I haven't been on Facebook in a very long time, and the Facebook page is not very active. But if you need a place to find a link, you know, it's there. Um, but yeah, just subscribe to us because obviously we do not come out regularly, and this way you won't miss when we do come out yeah. with an app. We have like two to four episodes recorded that we just haven't put out yeah (laughs) and i have ideas for like two that i really want to talk about yeah so i think we'll have some more coming out real soon yeah uh adam's been very busy at work and between the flu and spraining my toe (laughs) you're just always injuring yourself i know i know i just don't understand how not to anyway thanks for listening we love you hope it was good drive safe have a good night okay goodbye bye
来を急げ」